Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he will conti must continue a short time. And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen, called, or are, call, are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast... These will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for how amazing you are. Lord, we just love to get to know you more and more every day. Those of us that know you, we pray, Lord, that you would use this passage to make us more like your son, Lord. We pray that you would make us more and more holy. Help us, Lord, to judge our spiritual maturity by what we obey, not merely what we know. But, Lord, we are thankful that we get to know what you've revealed. So we pray that you'd be our teacher by your spirit. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be doers of your word, not just hearers only, deceiving ourselves. And we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I want to tell you a story. I'm not really good at storytelling, uh, but I will give it a shot. There is a story where a man was known by the name of Tammuz, T-A-M-M-U-Z. This man knew God, had told mankind in the beginning to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. But he wanted to rebel, and his mother was known as Semiramis. 
And that's S-I-M-M-O-R-A-M-U-S, just in case you're on Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune or something and you have to know that name. Uh, And she claimed that Tammuz had no earthly father, that he was a kind of a child of the light or child of the sunlight, and that she would one day found this child or was found with this child miraculously. Years later, an accident happened, and Tammuz was gored by a wild boar and killed. But he came back to life 40 days later, and he rose from the dead. And the story spread, and the people started worshiping Tammuz and his mother, even referring to to her as the Queen of Heaven. And their fame spread from that point on. Now, as we'll, we'll get to this story in a moment, touching on it again of how it relates to our passage. But as we look at these chapters, both Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 18, the subject is going to be uh, Babylon. And chapter 17, we're going to look at religious mystery Babylon. And next week, chapter 18, Lord willing, we'll look at commercial Babylon. So today we're focusing on religious uh, Babylon. And so as we look at that today, we need to understand its origin and exactly what it is. It can be very confusing and there's so many opinions related to it and so forth. But as we look at scripture alone and not merely at what man theorizes, we, we can get a better understanding of what exactly it is, what exactly he's talking about in chapter 17 here, but also some lessons for us today. Mystery Babylon, the religious part of that, is very well alive today. It's been going on for thousands of years, but it will ultimately culminate in a one-world religion, uh, name, and, and it'll, it'll actually go, out the se- go through the, the seven-year tribulation with great power, and, and, but it's still going on today. It has its origins from a long time ago. And, and, but once you learn how to recognize it, you can see its influence all over the place in this world. And that's what I'm hoping you'll be able to do after this morning. Now hold your place here and turn back to Genesis chapter 10. Should be pretty easy for you. We're in the last book. Just go back to the first book and turn to chapter 10. In chapter 10, God is reviewing the offspring or the lineages that from that came from Noah. And he's recounting kind of how all of this happened and the lineages and so forth so they could trace people could trace back uh, their lineages to to Noah and so forth and, and ultimately all the genealogies in the Old Testament and even the new that what those that are in Matthew and Luke have to do with the Messiah and most genealogies will fizzle out in the Old Testament but the ones that have to do with the lineage of Messiah will keep going and if you ever study the Old Testament uh, you'll see that So I want to begin reading in Genesis chapter 10, verse 7, where we're told the sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtaka, and the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Easy for them to say. Cush, (laughs) I can't pronounce this stuff. Cush begot Nimrod, who began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter under the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalnei in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, uh, Ur, and Kalah. So we get to see this person named 
uh, Nimrod here in verse 8. And the, ver the word literally means to rebel. How would you like that? Sometimes you want to name your kids that. I need to rename you. You're, you should be called Nimrod because you rebel too much. But we're told also in verse 8, he was a mighty one on the earth. And then in verse 9, we're told he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And actually the sense of that, especially as you look at what he was engaged in, the idea is he was a mighty hunter defiantly before the Lord or against the Lord. Some translations actually translate it that way. So he wasn't in line with God's plan, as we'll see. But he was a mighty hunter. He was very, very powerful. We're really not told really of any kingdoms that go on before uh, Nimrod's kingdoms that he established. He was kind of the first one that birthed kingdoms. That was that powerful. And he went from hunting beasts to eventually ruling men and to overseeing men. And, and many believe that he conquered men and made these kingdoms. And much of it was done not by people volunteering to be part of his kingdom, but by force. And we know the Antichrist will be a man of war uh, and so forth. So he began being very powerful over men, ruling them and establishing, again, some of the earliest kingdoms uh, the, of the ancient world. <clears throat> and notice in verse 10 that one of the first kingdoms he established is Babel. We see that right there, the first city named in verse 10. And in that city, Nimrod and others began to build these towers or ziggurats. And they were very well known for building these very, very high towers. And so we see that um, as a result of that, what we see in chapter 11, in fact, turn or look over in chapter 11 from there. It might be the next page or whatever. But this is the, in the beginning of chapter 11 in verse 1. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, and this is very important, this verse right here basically sums up the essence of every single man-made religion that exists or ever has existed right here. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And then it goes on to say how God descended and confused their languages and spread them out. Because he originally told Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it, to be fruitful and multiply and scatter. Acts chapter 17, we're told that God placed every type of people in very specific places that they might reach out and grope for him or reach out for him even though he's not far from any one of us so this tower was a tower of rebellion and it was it was <laughs> very appropriate that that uh, Nimrod was the one that was uh, founding this city so God had already told them to subdue it but they didn't want to do that they wanted to do what they wanted to do and so in verse 4, this key verse in this passage, we, we, it's revealed to us everything that we need to know about religious rebellion or this mystery Babylon, this religious Babylon kind of spirit or idea or philosophy that permeates all the early Eastern or all the, all the early period religions and continues even to this day. And this is, if you, from this one verse, you can see it's summed up. Really two things that they believe, and then one thing that's, that's going to make them be powerful in the last 
days. The first is self-focus. Notice it says, come let us build ourselves a city whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. It's all man-focused. Watch out for anybody. I don't care what title they have. I don't care what denomination or church they say they're from, how legitimate they want to appear. If they are teaching people to have a self-focus, they're of, they're of this mystery Babylon. The principles of that is carrying through into what they're teaching. Also, the second thing we see in that verse 4 is that they want to attempt to reach God by works on their own terms. The word Babel, the original uh, word from which Babel came from, literally means the gate of God. And they're trying to build a thing to reach God. They're trying to attain uh, salvation or to have the full potential that they feel like they have realized by getting close to God in their own works. And that sums up every man-made religion, doesn't it? Christianity is God's attempt to reach man through Christ. Religion is man's attempt to reach God through works. And where did it start? It started right here. What we see in Genesis chapter 10. The one piece that's missing that we're going to see fulfilled in Revelation, though, in verse 4, is the unity. Notice it says, come let us. This was all about coming together and uniting to a common purpose. Unity is powerful. We haven't seen the church be unified yet. I'm talking about born-again believers and so forth. not talking about ecumenicalism. I'm talking about born-again believers uniting. If we all united and we had a single mind and single focus, like the Lord Jesus prayed in, in John chapter 17, there's power in that. We would see the kingdom of God expanded like you can't even imagine. It's the enemy's plan to keep us fragmented. And, and Paul addressed that in Corinthians. And he said, some of you say, I am of Apollos. I am of Paul. I am of Peter. I have, some, I, I have Christ. That, that denominationalism or that being divided is, is not from God. It's, 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 it's from the flesh. So this unity, this come let us, part of this mystery Babylon is going to be ultimately fulfilled in the, this one world religion that we're gonna that we've been actually reading about already with the with the false prophet, but also in this this woman that's articulated here, that's the one thing that hasn't happened in this world yet. All the religions come together in in unity. All, I'm talking about all the different, you know, Buddhism, Muslim, Jew, you know, all the all the different religions come together, and this world is clamoring for it. They say, why can't you guys just all get along? And when someone comes and is able to bring all of them together. They want that peace so badly, they're going to say, that's the guy. And that's his, that's his religious leader, the false prophet. We're going to follow him or them. Because what they've been able to do, no leader in history has ever, ever been able to do, bring all the religions together. So that's the essence of it. Self-focus, uh, worshiping God on my terms through works, and being in unity in rebellion against him. Again, we have two out of the three going on. But the third, when this hits then we're going to see the one world religion. So God would confuse their language and they were scattered across the earth. But in the same area, a city was, would be born later that is from, has its origins from Babel, and that's Babylon. That, and that is the, in the same area. It had the same self-focus. It attempted to, to serve deities in its, by its own terms. And it was completely unified in itself, not in a world context that's coming. But in a, th that particular kingdom, it was very unified. It was very powerful, and it ruled 
the world. You know, Saddam Hussein tried to rebuild Babylon. He tried for, I think, 19 years. And he's, you know, such an egomaniac. He wanted to be the one to rebuild it. I believe it will be rebuilt before the end of that seven-year tribulation, if not before. But it's much more than just a city. Babylon represents a rebellion to God. It represents idolatry. It represents persecuting God's people. Because Babylon has always been involved with persecuting God's people. So this is a real place. It's about 53 miles south of Baghdad there. And that's going to be, I believe, rebuilt someday. The Antichrist, I believe, will partially rule from from that city. Now turn back to Revelation 17. Verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So one of the angels initiates this. John isn't initiating this. The, one of the angels that poured out his bowl of wrath on the earth that we saw in chapters 15 and 16, they, that angel wants to show John something. He wants to show him uh, what, what's going to happen. So he says this Harlot, that's a kind of a sanitized version. It's a prostitute, and, it, and that this prostitute sits on many waters. And later the angel defines that for us, what that is. And he also says that this, this harlot, the kings of the earth, committed fornication with her, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now this prostitute is a spiritual prostitute. In the Old Testament, God refers to we think it's only the bride of Christ. God refers to us as a bride in the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, he referred to the Jews as his bride. And when they served false gods, he said they were committing spiritual adultery and so forth. So this is a spiritual prostitute, and thus this fornication is a spiritual fornication. But one of the things that's interesting about that is the end of verse 2, it says the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her uh, fornication. This whole spiritual idolatry, those three things of self-rule, you know, self-importance, self-focus, and attaining God, you know, reaching Godhood or, or engaging God on our own terms through works, and then the unity that comes, all of those things, they will be intoxicating to people. They'll be saying, this is what we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for this this great movement where we all can be at peace and we can all get along and we can all do kumbaya together you know uh, as the world's children and you know all that matters is that we're sincere and if you're sincere that's i mean i was in a, a place earlier this week and there was a meal being served and someone said let's thank the higher power whatever his name is let's just thank the higher power and prayed and tried to bless the meal and I'm thinking in my mind, well, that didn't go very far. I mean, you have to true, serve the true and the living God. God gets to define uh, what, how we approach him. So this intoxicating influence uh, is, is arresting for people. I mean, it just captures their hearts and they are drunk. And when you're drunk, you don't have self-control. And this hurts people's ability to have self-control. And all through the New Testament, we're told that false prophets, many of which or many of whom will, will encourage people to sin against God and not have self-control. And that this is exactly what is going to happen. But again, all man-made religions have the first two, but they don't have the last one, and that's unity, a world unity. That's going to happen. And when that falls into place, 
that's going to be dangerous. And that's why, that's why God wanted to confuse their languages. He knew that when, they come, when they're united with one language, one focus, that they, they are going to do a lot of damage to, to what he had in mind. So that goes way, way back, all the way to the Tower of Babel. Verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. This scarlet beast is the Antichrist. And it could be that it's red because the fiery red dragon or the blood that he sheds, we don't know. But he's red there. And, and notice who is writing whom. This prostitute is writing the beast, not the other way around. Now, what is, what is superior, the person writing something or the beast person being ridden or the beast being ridden? So the picture here is that she, this worldwide religion, this spiritual Babylon, is going to appear to be in more, more in control than the Antichrist at the moment, in the beginning. He's going to seem very, very powerful, but everything that she does and the decisions that she makes, it's going to appear that she has great influence even over him. And he's going to allow that for a season, and then it's going to change. So this one world religious system will appear to have great influence over him, but it's just to serve his purposes. And the moment it doesn't, he's going to turn and devour her, and that's how God's going to judge. Remember, the whole chapter, chapter 17, is saying, he said, how I'm going to judge this harlot. This is all about how this harlot gets judged, and God's going to use the Antichrist and the, one, the, the new government that's coming to, uh, to judge her. And we'll get to that in, in a little bit. Verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple, which speaks of royalty, and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having her, head, her hand uh, a golden cup, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So there's going to be great wealth associated with this one world religion if everybody's giving towards that especially uh but it's also going to be financed by the 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 you know the european union when it comes into full fruition with the antichrist ruling over it and so forth it's going to be very very wealthy it will have no lack of resources in what it wants to accomplish notice in verse five she will be self-identified verse five and on her forehead a name written Name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. Now, a biblical term for mystery means that it was hidden in the past, but now it's revealed in the present. And usually it's tied to us having the spirit, being able to compare spiritual with spiritual. So she's wearing this, on her forehead was a name written. Now, the ancient uh, prostitutes would wear a headband with their name on it. That was very, very common. Any reader that was reading John's revelation right now, when he says this, they know exactly what he's talking about. She has a name written. This is a long name. I mean, how big is her head? <laughs> Where the headband, you know, can fit all that. I mean, I'd use an acronym or something. I don't know. But, uh, you know, this is, this is who she is, which tells us that this isn't going to be a hidden thing. She's going, this one world religion is going to be proud of its Babylonian roots. It's going to showcase that history and those origins. It's going to be proud of it. Notice the name says the mother of harlots. So it will be claimed to be the origin 
of all religions. This is the first religion that happened in the, in the, with the Tower of Babel and the, all of that. It was the first religion. So they're going to say, we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to go back to the first religion. And we're going to make, show you how all the major religions have their ultimate source in the first religion. And this is the best one. It's the one that's been around the longest beyond any other religion. And it's going to make total sense to people. Because when you're the mother of harlots, you're the mother of these things, you're the source, right? Mothers are sor- the source of their children, you know, physically. And this, this prostitute's going to claim to be the mother of all spiritual prostitutes. Interesting. Now, this story, remember, about uh, Semiramis and Tammuz, this legend is actually about Nimrod and his mother. It's amazing. You go back and you go in all the different religions, over 40 different cultures, 40 different belief systems have point to this origin as their beginning. And they use different names. Baal was the sun god that supposedly impregnated um, this uh, Semiramis. And, and, the, and the product was Tammuz. I mean, in Tammuz, as mentioned in Ezekiel, Ezekiel saw a vision. This woman was, was mourning after the death of Tammuz at the gate. And God said that was an abomination. In Jeremiah, we're, ta- we're told of the queen of heaven. It's talking about Semiramis here. So this legend grew. Eventually it spread. Every civilization had some form of this story. Guess what another name for Semiramis is? Ishtar. Ishtar became Easter. And so this Tammuz, he died and supposedly rose from the dead 40 days later. That's where we get Easter in the sense of the the pagan origin of it. Tammuz was supposedly born, guess when? December 25th. That's when Tammuz was born. It predates all. It's like the enemy saw that prophecy in the garden that the the woman is, she's going to give, her seed is going to, to, uh, crush his head but he would bruise his heel it's like she he knew that there was going to be a, a woman that from her seed because women don't have seeds they have eggs it's going to be supernatural from her seed come, is going to come forth this one that's going to crush his head so he preemptively made up this false thing so that even today when colleges and universities they say that christian whole thing with the miraculous birth and the virgin and all of that that's been around way before christianity they say that today in colleges it's ridiculous. Every major religion uh, has some kind of roots going back that far. There's just a few exceptions to that. So it's been going around. And they still have the, the, the three things. Self-focus, approaching God on my terms through works, and then being in unity. Again, with that unity not being totally, completely fulfilled. She's not ashamed of who she claims to be. Her origins go back all the way to the very beginning. And now people ask, okay, what about Roman Catholicism? We're going to get to that in a moment, but it will be greatly involved in it. It won't be, it'll be involved and it'll be part of it, but it's not going to be alone, the the Mystery Babylon official religion. No, the other religions would never, ever agree to that. It's just going to be one of, of many. There's a huge push right now by the current Pope to bring in and welcome different religions. He's having other religions come in and pray. And there's actually Protestant leaders that, if I said their names, you'd recognize them, that are going along with this and they are going to Rome and meeting with the Pope and so forth. It's going to be a part of it. 
but it's not going it's going to morph into something totally completely different than just merely the roman catholic church it's going to be a complete composite or combination of a lot of different religions but what do they all have in common they all have this whole babylonian thing in common all the religions just about do so they'll say yeah we're just going to go back to our roots and so forth verse six i saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of jesus and when i saw her i marveled with great amazement this one world government's going or religion rather is going to be responsible for these tribulation saints being martyred They're, it's going to be responsible for that and and i believe the reason why john is so amazed he's amazed at the picture he's amazed you know the angel's going to say why do you marvel and so forth he's going to be amazed and impressed with that but i think he's going to be amazed in many ways because this is a pseudo church something claiming to be the church that's actually responsible for martyring and having bloodshed um, there of of true believers there an inquisition where roman catholicism was killing protestants 50 million died so there's precedence for this and not that protestants quote protestants haven't been involved in ungodly things i'm not saying that but roman catholicism has a history of that as well so john is amazed and so the angel responds in verse 7 says why did you marvel i will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her which has the seven heads and ten horns he says beginning in verse 8 the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition and those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life and from the foundation of the world When they see the beast that was and is not and yet is, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other one has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. He's going on and on all the way through verse 13. You're like, you mean this is easy for you to understand, angel? This is like a revisionist, or not revisionist, but this is remedial for you? They must have a much lower learning curve than us. I mean, think about that's like, what is he saying? Let's go through it. <clears throat> In verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And then at the end of the verse, it says, and, and when they saw the beast that was and is not and yet is. So I believe this is speaking of the Antichrist recovering from that head wound that we saw. He, he was, he was not, and then all of a sudden he is. <clears throat> and verse 9, I believe, is speaking of Rome because it says, here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, Rome sits on seven, they're hills. They're not probably technically mountains, but Rome is famous for a city on seven hills. It's famous for that. Some people believe that these mountains are kingdoms. I don't believe that just because it would make um, verse 10. Let me read here. Actually, verse 9. The seven heads are seven mountains. No, verse 10. These are the seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. I don't believe the seven mount or seven hills in verse 9 is talking about that. I think those are literal hills. He's identifying the city. And he's going to do it again later on as Rome. And, and the reason why is because in verse 10, that's when it's, I believe it's talking about kingdoms. Because there have been, uh, of this point, that he, where John is uh, receiving this, 
there's already been five kingdoms that have gone on the scene and gone off the scene. You have Egypt being the first, second, Assyria, third, Babylon, fourth, Medo-Persia, and the fifth one was Greece. And then he says the kingdom that now is, I believe that's Rome. So that's the sixth one. Because at the time of this writing, Rome was ruling the world. And then he says the seventh, I believe the seventh that he talks about that it's coming is, um, I mean, I'm sorry, the world ruling empire at the time. Now, the seventh is the revived Roman empire that I've been talking about. So that's, you you remember the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, dream, and Daniel interpreted it. The legs of iron were talking about Rome. And so the feet are iron and clay. So it's a continuation of that, that Roman empire. It's revived. It has still a lot of the same people that were in it or countries that were in it before, but now there's some clay in there that makes it to where they don't mix that well. And that's why you see a lot of that friction in the European Union because it's mixed with clay. But eventually they're all going to come in line under the Antichrist and it will be the, the, the government from which the whole world government comes. So that's important for us to see. <clears throat> then it says in verse 11, he includes the Antichrist with the seven kingdoms and calls him the eighth and it's likely because the seventh kingdom is he's a part of it at first the survived roman empire and then at some point i believe he even turns on that and says i'm my own kingdom and i think that's part of the reason why we see at the end of revelation we see these kings of the earth uh turning on him he has a whole army from the south an army from the north and the east that are converging on him at the same time, which starts the battle of Armageddon. And then when they all of a sudden look up and see Christ coming with us coming behind and making war against him who's coming on that horse. So that's, I believe, in part why they uh, rebel. And And then the 10 kings having received no kingdom yet that he says there, I believe will be the 10 rulers of the revived Roman Empire. There's no official revived Roman Empire yet. So the 10 kings, whether they be... 10 different countries it you know whittles down to 10 countries by then i don't think that's the case i think it's going to be territorial the whole world's going to be uh different territories and there's going to be 10 rulers that oversee each territory so so they don't have that kingdom yet i think that's what um that's what he's talking about and then at the verse 13 when it says these are of one mind and they will give their power and authority excuse me to the beast so they're totally unified they give him power in the beginning. And he's going to look like he reluctantly takes it. Oh, shucks. Well, I guess if you say so, I'll be the world ruler. I don't really want to be, but since you insist, okay, I'll do it. And then he's going to be pompous and arrogant and proclaim him to be, you know, himself to be God and so forth. And I think eventually he's going to turn from that government and declare himself to be the only kingdom. He himself is a kingdom. That's what, that's what Satan wants. That's what he's wanted all this time. Verse 14, then these will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are called, are called, are called faith chosen and faithful. <clears throat> oh, I can't read that right. Uh, but it's like John just can't let this continue without putting something in of just this is what the, who's really in sovereign and in control. And I'm just going to tell you that, you know, he just reveals this. It's like, you can talk about all these kingdoms all you want, but there's one king of kings and Lord of lords, and he's the Messiah. He's the Lord Jesus. He's going to come back and end all of this craziness, and he's going to judge, judge 
these kings that are in the Antichrist and, and this, uh, this spiritual prostitute. But notice at the end of verse 14, he says, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. And that's supposed to be a blessing to us to read that. That's how he designates us. Well, I don't feel really called right now. <laughs> I feel lost. I feel non-called. Or I feel like I'm not chosen. I feel like he made a mistake. and <laughs> I got in by accident, you know. He didn't want me in, but I just got in somehow. I'm not chosen. Or I'm not faithful. He counts us as faithful. We are faithful. And so sometimes our lives need to line up with what he says we're about. What our lives really are. Our emotions and our, what our thoughts are, our circumstances, what other people think about us, they don't mean anything. What ultimately matters is what God says about us. That's why it's so important to know this book, to know your identity in Christ, to know what he says about you and believe what he says about you. No, even if your emotions are screaming at you at any given moment, that it's not true. That's what the life of faith is about. I believe what God says about me, even if I feel and think that I have evidence to the contrary. God is true and let God be true and every man a liar. So he says, this is the one that's really, these are the ones that are really called, chosen, and faithful. It's us. And I like the fact that he says, who are with him. We are with him at this point in history. You're already in heaven in here. You're already with him. It's beautiful. Verse 15. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So again, this isn't just going to be the Catholic Church alone because they don't rule over, the Catholic Church doesn't rule over every single religion and person that, that's in religion and so forth. It's, it's going to be, he's, it's going to be included in that, but it will encompass all religions and, and people will absolutely love it. You know, what's interesting about the European Union as it relates to Rome is the very same month in 1948, they started talking about coming together and creating a United States of Europe. But it didn't officially come into existence until 1957 where they met in Rome and it was ratified by the Treaty of Rome. You can Google Treaty of Rome and read all about it. How they came together and that was the beginning of that kingdom is at that, at that time with the European Union and it will eventually be full-on revived Roman Empire. Now God, God's judgment of this prostitute is in verse 16. He says... And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. Often God uses his enemies to judge his other enemies. You see it in scripture. He's even, he's even used uh, other ungodly kingdoms, Babylon being one of them, to discipline his own people. And so when they... <laughs> the one. They can't be defeated, just like us. We can't be defeated by anything from without. It's usually from within when we're defeated. And we compromise and so forth. And the, the Israelites were, or the Jews weren't, weren't any different. They were serving false gods. They wouldn't turn. And Jeremiah preached for 30 years, didn't have one known convert. And he was completely successful, warning them of what was coming. That Babylon was going to judge them. And, and it happened. And they were in captivity for 70 years. So he says uh, th this judgment is going to come. So this 
these, these politicians that oversee the one world government and they're out of the European Union and so forth, they're going to use this spiritual prostitute, they're going to use this one world religion and the beast is going to use it for his purposes as long as it serves them. And just like many politicians, not all, but many politicians, they will say that they believe in religion or they're for spiritual things or whatever until it doesn't suit them anymore, and then they completely disregard it and discard it. And that's what's going to happen. They're going to use this. They're going to use this as a means to get power. But once they have all that power, they're going to abandon it and turn on it. And the 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 imagery there in verse sixteen is supposed to show how savage and how ruthless they are going to be against the one world church, uh, one world religion they're going to be savage towards it they're going to be horrible towards it. i mean how can you get any worse of a description than what you see in verse 16 <clears throat> verse 17 for god has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of god are fulfilled so god's the one ultimately in charge he's the one that's judging he started the chapter by saying i'll show you this judgment so he's the one that's judging this but notice what the purpose was to be of one mind again that's the third piece that's missing in mystery babylon it's always been self-focus worship god on your own terms but it's always missed that unity and so God knows that. And at the end, at the right time, he's going to put it in their hearts to be of one mind. And that's going to give them their, their power and so forth. And they're, and they're going to judge both the spiritual prostitute and that government. Verse 18. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, this is another reason why I believe these seven uh, hills are talking about Rome because in this verse I believe he's talking about well who, who, what's the great city right now that's ruling it's Rome the woman that you saw is that great city which reigns and it's currently currently reigns over the kings of the earth Rome ruled over the kings of the earth at this time so I believe it's going to have a lot to do with Rome and the Roman Catholic Church as the basis for it but it's going to again be much bigger and broader than, than just that. But the Roman Catholic Church has plenty of things that have its roots in the, the Babylonian religion. And I want to read a few of them to you. Now, I was raised Catholic. I'm not saying that there aren't born-again Catholics. I'm not saying that at all. If, if you are one, though, you're one in spite of or despite the doctrine and the teaching and you're believing the true gospel instead of the gospel that combines works and faith together because that's no gospel at all. And I point to Galatians chapter 1 if you disagree with that. So I'm not saying all Catholics are going to hell. A lot of them are. Most of them are. Because they're believing the Catholic gospel, which is a gospel of works. But what I am saying is there is a huge, huge influence. When Constantine received Christ, and they started saying that Rome is not going to persecute Christians anymore, and we're going to make this the official religion, they tried to incorporate all these things, these traditions, to try to help that transition. So they made Christmas on December 25th. They, they uh, made, you know, Easter that was already in the spring. They made that celebrating the resurrection of Christ. But there's all, a whole bunch of things that I want to read to you that are, are from this mystery Babylon left over. The confessional, only having a priest having religious knowledge, relic worship, rosary beads. The rosary beads come from Babylon. The, heart, the pictures with the, the heart on fire, you've seen that with the, 
the Virgin Mary with the heart on fire and the other heart and the, and the child that's kind of on fire or glowing, that predates Catholicism. That, there were pictures of the Queen of Heaven and the, that son, Tammuz, with glowing hearts going way back. That's not unique to the Catholic Church. Um, lighting candles to God, that was the total Babylonian. The, the sign of the cross, I mean, they didn't do a cross back then, but they did signs over their chests to, to show allegiance. That's from Babylon. The power structures, the relationship between the priests and the nuns and how, all, how they interact with each other, complete Babylon. The priests attire with headdresses and robes and garments and a staff, all Babylon. Uh, holy water, burning incense, uh, weeping and bleeding images, that's all Babylonian. It has all of its roots in Babylon. It's all mystery Babylon. But it's not just Catholicism. A lot of different religions have their origin in that and point back to that to, as their, their, their beginnings. But again, what's the common denominator? Self-focus, um, serving God on my terms, usually by works, and then being all complete in, in complete unity. So we are called to be different. There's a movement of ecumenicalism in the world right now, and there's pressure on us to say we're just as valid as, or that Christianity is just as valid as other religions, and we're going to face an increasing pressure to cave on that. We can't cave. We know what it is. It's spiritual Babylon. It's religious Babylon, that philosophy that says we can do it on our own terms, and we need to be the focus of, of, of everything and so forth. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 6, of Second Corinthians, he said, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord does Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? We're supposed to be separate. We're still supposed to be salt and light, and that's a tricky thing of how to do that appropriately. But we're not to fellowship with the world. We're not supposed to align ourselves with the world and ungodliness. And it's offensive to God that all these religions are going to try to come together in one thing, saying that they can approach God on their own terms and they're, and they're going to be the focus. And so this whole mantra of, can't you guys just get along and we need to be uh, peaceful and so forth, you know how that works its way into our lives in terms of how we can compromise it causes us to not want to talk about the gospel and how unique Christianity is. It puts pressure on us to not say he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. I had a person say to me one time at a job, how dare you say that? That's so arrogant. And I said, you know what the cool thing about that is? I didn't say it. Jesus said it. Are you saying that Jesus is a liar? Uh, uh, you know, like I had to think about that a little bit. Well, the writers, you know, they just wrote that down. Yeah, and they gave their lives saying that he, he rose from the dead. No one dies or something you know to be a lie. So where is your evidence that there isn't one way? Can't there only be one way? Does God have the right to make one way? If you were God and you wanted to make it one way, would you like creation, like little ants on the ground looking up at you, being this massive giant saying, you can't make it more than one way. You have to make it more than one way, not one way. You wouldn't like that little thing. You wouldn't like the puny little creation telling you, if you want it to be one way, then you have the right to do it, if you're God. I always ask people, does God have the right to make it one way? They hate that question. Because obviously God has the right. And once they say that it's possible, then I can say, well, then that's what he said. Let's read it. 
I mean, you don't want to make Jesus a liar. You don't want to say he's a liar, do you? They hate that. So that's important. <clears throat> so our message, our message needs to be communicated because we want to shut our mouths sometimes. We don't want to stir things up. We don't want to rock the boat. All through the New Testament, you see them rocking the boat. Brought before the religious people. The, the people that believed they had God's favor on their terms. That were trying to please God and attain righteousness through their works. Just like Mystery Babylon. They were brought before them and they said, it's better to, believe, to obey uh, God or you. You decide. They were bold. So we can't, we have to open up our mouths. Don't be ashamed. We can see that this whole philosophy that's pervasive is going to end. There's an end to it. God showed us the end of the book. He's going to win. So we need to be bold. And then we need to understand that coming together in an unhealthy, ungodly, ecumenical way is not pleasing to God. That light doesn't have anything to do with darkness. False gods have nothing to do with the one true God. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. There is no other rival. He is alone in that category as God, and we're going to follow him and obey him on his terms. We're not going to focus on ourselves. We're going to focus on him. We're not going to worship him on his terms. We're going to worship him on, on, on our terms. We're going to worship him on... You know what I'm saying, trying to say. We're not going to worship him on our terms. That's what I'm trying to say. And it's not up to us to try to make a name for ourselves like they said at the Tower of Babel. We want his name magnified. We want him to be famous, not ourselves. Let's pray together. Lord, we're just grateful that we can know in your word exactly what this means. We see it all through our culture, Father. Help us to not com uh, compromise. Help us, Lord, to stay true to that gospel, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, that you made a way at all to save us. Help us, Lord, not to compromise with our message, Help us to open our mouth. We know that faith comes by hearing. And so we want to preach that gospel. Give us boldness to proclaim it, Lord. We're grateful that you're going to judge that harlot. We never want to commit spiritual fornication, Lord, with, against you. We never want to commit spiritual adultery, Lord. Help us to keep our love and devotion locked on only to you. No other, no rival thrones, Lord. Just your throne. Just who you are. We're grateful that you are way more than we could ever ask for in a God to worship, Lord. We want to stay true in every way, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.